This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know what they say, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. But when it comes to your health, it may be hard to know the difference between good scientific advice and the lure of a quack. This week, we're going to wade into the world of quack science. We're going to find out the intentions behind this movement and how those who practice it manage to gain your trust. And in our SAS class, we're going to talk with a man who's on a mission to cook their goose before they can drain your wallet. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers by uncovering a world filled with wonder, but not much science. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. In the 16th century, as science was becoming the benchmark for medicine in Europe, a dilemma arose. How could people know they were getting a science-based treatment as opposed to a home-concocted brew made by people without any knowledge of safety? The term charlatan was the word of choice to describe these untrained healers. But in 1543, the Dutch came up with a new one that seemed to fit perfectly. Quacksalver. It means someone who talks about cures like a duck. Back then, quackery, as it became known, had more to do with putting on productions that would get attention than providing good scientific information. The seller would have an accompanying act, including singers, dancers, acrobats, puppeteers, jugglers, and jesters. And much like the quack of a duck, people were helpless to resist looking for the source of the noise. Even in the 19th century, when science finally had the ability to rule the medical world, quacks had what you might call the higher moral authority. They could claim they were the ones that were holding on to tradition and keeping up with the natural ways of the world. Science-based medicine was all about experimentation, and it was decried as immoral and dangerous. Quackery continued to thrive in Europe and the United States, and despite the efforts of researchers, nothing could stop these anti-science outlaws from riding into town and taking over. But that all changed in 1938, when the United States enacted the law known as the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It was the start of what we now know as the FDA. Suddenly, the idea of tradition, which had reigned supreme, had been replaced by science. If you wanted to sell something you claimed was a treatment or cure, you had to provide scientific proof that the product was safe, that the health claims were valid, that the products contained no poisons, and that all marketing was honest and fair and in the interest of consumers. This was supposed to change everything. Unfortunately, quacks simply took on a new act. They ventured into the realm of pseudoscience. There is one tenet by which all scientists, and for the most part humans, adhere. Nothing is absolute. 
We are always learning through experimentation, and this leads us to even greater knowledge and advancement of our world, our environment, and us. But there is one slight drawback to this philosophy. There is never going to be an absolute answer to any scientific question. That's where pseudoscience comes in. The quacks who peddle this type of thinking do so to generate an absolute mindset in whomever pays attention. They utilize the same process as science and even go as far as mimicking research to prove their point. But instead of contributing to an additional step in our overall understanding, they claim they have found the answer. And they want you to believe they have as well. Should they be criticized, these individuals claim that the attacks are an attempt to create a world in which only one rule of law applies. And some believe they are taking science to a whole new level. And as such, those of us who are still relying on standard operating protocols are old-fashioned, traditional, and out of touch. Talk about a role reversal. In the meantime, the quacks are raking in the profits. Although exact estimates are hard to calculate, one can easily assume hundreds of billions of dollars are spent each year on health and cosmetics. It really does beg the question, what can science do to help keep people safe and preserve the money in their pockets? Thankfully, there are people wise to the efforts of quackery and pseudoscience, and they work tirelessly to name and shame those who are out to make a buck without caring for you or your wallet. One such person is Jonathan Jerry. He's a science communicator at the McGill Office for Science and Society. He's also the host of the incredibly entertaining Crack Science web series that takes a comical look at quackery and reveals why you should definitely not believe everything you see. What inspired you to head into science translation and taking on quackery? Okay, so, so first off, let's define some terms because I, I think the word quackery gets thrown about quite a bit. Uh, so there really is, there's a spectrum, right? And at one end there's science, and at the other end there's pseudoscience, which are things that look like science but really aren't. And even within the, the science part of the spectrum, there's, there's bad science. There are bad studies out there. There's bad scientific research. So I'm really interested in sort of looking at specific issues that come up and trying to see where on the spectrum that they fit. And some of them are really at the, at the, at the pseudoscience scientific end of the spectrum, and we can call, call it quackery. Uh, but I'm really interested in sort of delineating, you know, uh, things that are good science, bad science versus uh, pseudoscience. And um, I think one of the sort of my, my formative experiences was when I was uh, studying for a PhD. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I started to notice a lot, of, a lot of bad incentives in the system in which biomedical researchers uh, work. And so that gave me, a, gave me a new perspective on science itself. And as somebody who has been a skeptic for, you know, 10, 10 or so years, I was, I'm, I'm just frustrated by these, these kernels of truth that are being distorted to deceive people. Um, so all of these experiences kind of made me want to uh, speak out on these issues. And so I started a blog uh, a long time ago. I started a podcast as well and eventually got to, you know, where I am today where I can get to do this work uh, full-time uh, at, at McGill, which is, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. Your web series at McGill, Crack Science, I've seen it. I love it. It's a no-holds-barred approach to highlighting bad science for what it really is. But what has been the response from the community? 
Well, I mean, thank you for the compliments. Certainly, we were trying to do so to do something different uh, by using the the late night talk show deep dive format, uh, but using it for a skeptical take on relevant scientific topics. And I, I don't think that has been done before. The issue, of course, is the issue that we're all facing, which is that we are uh, competing in an ocean of content. Right? There's so much content out there. Whether it's we're talking about YouTube, we're talking about uh, podcasting, even blogging, there's just so much content out there. So it's it's been quite challenging for us to uh, find our audience. I mean, we have we have definitely improved, uh, you know, how many people know about us and and, and follow us and consume our content. But uh, this is the biggest. Uh, this is one major issue that I think all skeptics and science communicators uh, have to deal with, which is how do you find uh, your audience? I think the average uh, person who consumes podcasts, for example. Uh, we'll listen to about six or seven podcasts uh, a week. And we're seeing more and more of these, these major figures, these actors, these celebrities who are now entering this space. Uh, and so we're competing with them as well for, for eyeballs and for attention. Um, so that's, that's, been, uh, that's been a big challenge. It's interesting because you not only have a challenge with trying to get the public involved, but you're also having to go up against a number of these celebrities who are purporting all sorts of really, really bad information, but doing it in such a stylistic way that it's almost impossible for someone to think, oh, this, this isn't true at all. It is. That's a bit. That's a big problem, uh, especially because scientists. I mean, I'm a scientist by training, and and we're not trained to be in front of the camera. We're not trained to have charisma, uh, to be funny, and to be uh, to be able to improvise. Uh, so this is a skill set that you will find with actors, for example. And so yeah, you you can see how how Gwyneth Paltrow would be quite successful at what she does. Uh, and also because these uh, these people who are pushing for uh, pseudoscience. They will give you easy answers to complicated questions. And we're coming in with the science, and the science is usually very nuanced. It's very tentative. You know, this is what we know right now, but it could change in a few years. These are animal studies. They're not, they're not great. We can't say that it works in humans. And this kind of, this kind of nuance, these kinds of details uh, are, are a bit of a harder sell. Another tool that they have on, on their end is, is fear, right? A lot of this is predicated on fear mongering. Uh, it's, oh, my God, there's chemicals in my food. Um, and, and, and fear spreads extremely fast in, in, a, in a population taking control of that and correcting that and reassuring people, uh, that's really difficult. Do you think charm then is really the missing component for science? So we could gain some momentum against these celebrities and pseudoscience pushers and, and quacks. I think that it helps. You know, I, I think that charisma really, really helps. I mean, uh, something that we know quite well in science communication is that facts generally don't change people's minds, right? It's stories that do. And so if you can reinvent yourself as a really good storyteller that is using stories that are science-based, I think you can, you can make some, some headway. I think t- Timothy Caulfield is a very good example of somebody uh, who has managed to do just that. I mean, if you read his books, uh, like The Cure for Everything or Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything, he will go through through these things. He'll go through cleanses. He will uh, go to American Idol and he writes about these experiences uh, with a lot of charm, a lot of wit, and then he takes you through the scientific literature. There's somebody on the French side here in Quebec who is doing something very similar with his TV show, uh, Olivier Bernard. And so I do think that, you know, if, if and this is very difficult again for, for, for scientists and for healthcare professionals who are not trained in this, but if you do have 
that kind of skill set, uh, tapping into that can open a lot of doors. You're the host of another brilliant series, The Body of Evidence. This takes a very different approach from what you were doing with Crack Science. Tell us a little bit more about why you chose to go this direction with this series. So uh, The Body of Evidence is a podcast. Uh, It was the idea of my co-host, Dr. Christopher Labos, who is a cardiologist and epidemiologist. And basically, we wanted to do a a fairly short podcast about, about medicine, but make it really interesting. And I say medicine, but I mean, it really is about health. I mean, we've, we've talked about brain training software, probiotics, direct-to-consumer genetic testing, testosterone supplements, all kinds of interesting stuff. And we're looking at where is the state of the research on these topics? Is there a lot of hype? Are there bad studies, good studies? And what can this particular topic teach us about the limitations of certain types of studies, right? And so because Chris is an epidemiologist, uh, we talk a lot about the difference between observational studies versus experimental studies. Uh, what are cohort studies? What are randomized clinical trials? animal studies. And all this stuff can be very, very boring. And so it was very important to us in the beginning that we not make our show boring. It has to be entertaining as well as being educational. And so we've managed to to wrangle a number of collaborators who are helping us uh, create a show that is sort of multifaceted. Each show starts with a skit in which uh, Chris and I play, you know, heightened versions of ourselves. There's a Vox Pop, so we hire somebody uh, who will go and talk to the public here in Montreal and ask them the question of the month and try to be funny about it. We, we spent about 25 minutes going over the evidence on this particular topic. We want people to have a take-home message at the end that is easy to remember. And so we have a jingle at the end. So we're working with two incredibly talented uh, singer-songwriter musicians. And so they put, up, they put a jingle together for us that, that sort of summarizes in one quick phrase uh, what is a take-home message. We also have fake sponsorships on the show. Uh, so all of that to keep it uh, interesting and entertaining uh, while we're also giving you the evidence on these topics. Do you think then that humor really is the best strategy? Or do you think all aspects of entertainment can fit in to what we're trying to do, which is to make sure that good science continues to be out in the public? I think that humor and and entertainment are very, very potent uh, weapons. I mean, you know, there's all the information that we discuss on the show Most of it can be found on, for example, the Health Canada website. But these kinds of sort of governmental websites tend to be very dry. Uh, And so you will go there if you're really, really looking for an answer. Um, But I think that if you you can be entertaining, uh, you have a bigger chance of attracting attention, of keeping that attention, keeping those eyeballs. Um, And it just, it just, it just, it also breaks free from this notion that science is boring. I do have a problem with the fact that so many of our science centers and science museums seem to be catering exclusively to children and to, and to new parents, as if you know, science is something that you get into when you're very young and then you, you do away with it because it's no longer fun. Uh, science can be fun and learning about, about health, learning about scientific research uh, can be entertaining. I think, I think if this is something we can manage in our, in our podcast and our YouTube videos and our blogs, I think we should aim for that because it just, it just helps the medicine go down. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
As science has advanced, one of the most awesome feats has been the ability to visualize the world the human eye cannot see. From microbes to molecules to atoms and quantum particles, exploring the invisible has improved how we understand our universe. But for centuries, quacks have relied on the invisible to make people believe. In the early days, many of these quackerpreneurs incorporated aspects of the unseen to help sell their goods. After all, how many times have you heard of a miracle cure? Their products are not medicines, but symbols that use something invisible or unknown to identify and possibly cure a problem. Use a copper bracelet to change your energy and relieve arthritis. Take a closer look at the iris to diagnose disease. Undergo a detox so you can eliminate harsh chemicals. And infect yourself naturally with a used tissue. Gross. Now that science can investigate and analyze the invisible universe, you might think that quacks would realize that their go-to explanations no longer apply. Yet instead, they have come up with terminologies that have no basis in science, but definitely sound like they are meaningful. One of the major arguments against vaccinations happens to be support of one's natural immunity. That sure sounds important, doesn't it? But when you think about it, what does that actually mean? That's the Achilles heel of quackery. When faced with reality, it can only do one of two things. It can cry, complain, fight back, and make up new terms. Or it can simply go away. You don't need three guesses to know which one I prefer to see. That's why having the McGill Office of Science and Society is so important. Whether they are making videos, writing blog posts, putting together podcasts, or writing books, the members of this team strive to achieve their motto, which is separating sense from nonsense. And sometimes the goal can be achieved not by attacking, but as Jonathan Jerry points out, by keeping science at the forefront of our lives. Tell us a little bit about the Office of Science and Society there at McGill and how it's helping to reduce the boring nature of debunking pseudoscience. Right, so our office, uh, the OSS, is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And basically what we do is there's a lot of, you know, uh, talking about the chemistry of everyday life. We've been fighting against chemophobia, so this irrational fear of chemicals, and separating sense from nonsense for the public on, on a number of topics be they, you know, the latest hangover cure or paranoia over statins, the issue of raw diets for pets or the carnivore diet for humans. And as far as we know, it's the only university-backed office in the world that does this kind of work, right? So we're not a PR office. We're not here to talk about the research that is being done at McGill. We're really there to be independent and to look at, again, the body of evidence on a number of issues and to explain to the public how these things work, what is real, what isn't, what is, what is fact, and what is uh, nonsense. Uh, we also host an annual uh, symposium, and we've had some, some amazing guests in the past, people like uh, Ben Goldacre and Timothy Caulfield and Jill Tarter, uh, and we've also uh, hosted other events. We've done a screening of a great documentary called Science Moms uh, that we did for, for, for parents, and all this was uh, came about because three chemistry professors at McGill decided that this, this was needed. And this was driven by their, their desire to demystify these concepts, these concepts for the public with, again, with a lot, of, a lot of humor and a lot of levity, which I think really helps. With so much bad science out there, how do you decide what subjects to cover and which myths to bust? Yeah, that's a, 
That's a good question. Uh, sometimes I feel like I need a, a brain implant for the internet to just keep up with all this stuff. There's a variety of, of ways. I mean, sometimes, I mean, we do take requests. I mean, sometimes people write to us. I mean, I had a, I had a colleague of mine, or actually a friend of mine who wrote to me and said, you know, I'm hearing a lot about this tapping business called emotional freedom technique. A lot of people with traumas are using it. Is this, is this real or not? It seems like pseudoscience. Uh, and so I looked into it and I made an episode of, the, of Cracked Science about it. We look at what's in the news, right? What is trending? Uh, I mean, right now, vaccines are in the news quite a bit, vaccine-preventable diseases like measles. So I decided to make a video about the vaccine hesitant, which is something that we don't talk about quite as much. seems like people are either pro-vaccine or they're anti-vaccine. But actually there is, you know, maybe 15% of people in a population that are hesitant about vaccines. I wanted to see what does the data say about talking to these people? How do you convince these people? And, and we also decide based on our areas of expertise, right? So my, my background is more in, in molecular biology and human genetics. My boss, Dr. Joe Schwartz, is a chemist, so that plays into it. And personal interest as well. I mean, some of these topics, I just, I really want to know what the answer is. I'm preparing a video on, on screen time. Is uh, spending too much time on your smartphone or your computer, is that damaging to you? I've seen the headlines. It looks very scary, but is this true or not? Like, I'm, I'm, generally, I'm generally curious. Is there more you think that can be done, whether it be from OSS or perhaps from collaborations with other groups, to be able to get more people to not just tune in, but also to take action to avoid quackery. Something that I care about a lot is the, the, the skeptical community, people who proportion their belief to the strength of the evidence. And fortunately, I, I, I don't see a lot of action uh, from that community here in Canada. And one of the things that we've done, I think, quite successfully with the body of evidence, for example, is to get some people who want to contribute, right? They are skeptical. They want to uh, help get the right message out there, but they're not scientists or they're not medical doctors, but maybe they're very good musicians or they're comedians or they design websites for a living or they, they, they're a very good illustrator. And so we've managed to tap into their, their individual talents. So they're contributing to our, to our podcast. So you know, right now we're working with an illustrator who did a very nice cartoon for us about animal studies and, and, and their worth. I think that, you know, you don't need to be a scientist, you don't need to be a healthcare professional to contribute in this arena. If you have a special talent, uh, you can partner up with somebody who has a platform and who's looking to communicate good science in a way that is, that is you know, something other than just, you know, talking about it or writing about it. And also something that we often forget is that people who like the work that we do in that field, they can amplify our voice. This is something very simple. It doesn't cost anything. They can share our stuff online on Facebook, on Twitter. They can just talk about the work that we do. If, if more people amplified our voices, then, you know, we could, we could stand a chance against the, against the quacks. It's SAS class time. And today, we're going to learn how to spot the difference between quackery and science-based evidence. Our guest teacher is Darren McKee who is one of the hosts of the awesome podcast, The Reality Check. It's a weekly look at controversies and curiosities and uses science to bust myths. They also expose the truth behind some of the topics we all know, but sometimes are afraid to discuss. They've tackled numerous subjects over the years and have found an excellent mix of comedy, camaraderie, and of course, science. Tell us a little about yourself and why you entered the realm of myth and quack busting. 
Well, I've always been a big fan of science and curious to figure out how things work, how the world works, and to learn things that are true and actually are not true. And I think as I, as I aged, I learned that you unfortunately can't just listen to people. I kind of wish you could because then it'd be a lot easier. But the more you learn, you realize some people just don't know what they're talking about, not because they're intentionally deceptive, just because they may not know themselves. So... I've just been exposed to enough people saying things. You're like, well, maybe that's not true. I kind of have to look that up on my own. And my background, I guess, is psychology and public policy. But in terms of me getting on the reality check, it was through a friend, uh, Xander, who was one of the original crew. And he was just looking to have more people on the show in general. And he knew I had similar, we'll say, scientific and philosophical worldview that he had. And uh, that's how I joined. I came out on episode eight way back in 2008 in October. And I've been with the show ever since. You're at over 500 episodes. That's over 10 years of work. How have you managed to find so many topics to cover? We're just relentless. Um, So... (laughs) It's actually, it's a good question that when we started it, we never thought it would get this far. I think we just thought this is something fun and interesting and we'll just see where it goes. And I guess it's gone to where it is now. We think we just did episode 536. The format is pretty locked down now that usually each show has about three segments. So to do some basic math for your listeners, three times 500, it's over 1,500 topics we've covered. Rarely do we rerun an episode. We do some mashups sometime, and rarely do we recover the same topic. But sometimes if we've done it, say, eight years ago, we think maybe newer listeners haven't quite heard what's going on or there's an update to make. As for what um, drives all the, the topics and how we come across them, it really is each of us come up with topics that we think are interesting and we choose those. It's somewhat of a democratic society, but at the same time, we don't usually vote on what someone can or can't do. They just present it, understanding the broad parameters of what the show is. As for topics, it could be I've read a book and I come across something interesting or someone posts something on Facebook, which doesn't seem to be true. Or quite frankly, if you just have a normal conversation with almost anyone longer than five minutes, something will come up which sounds like it may or may not be true, or at least can be investigated. Alternatively, we might just come across an interesting fact and want to share that, or something new happens, like a new document is released, a new study comes out, uh, perhaps news like Canada's Food Guide came out, I did an overview of that, or there's some trending topic that we think should deserve some attention. We're also a huge fan of, like, public service announcements or health announcements because we think that's very important. This might link to issues of quackery, which we'll get into. But uh, it seems like we knew that you can't just stick to, say, paranormal stuff, which is what the show did a lot of originally. There had to be something that takes into account current news events or recent findings. Otherwise, yes, you're going to run out of topics because there isn't quite 1,500 standalone science-based topics on their own, unless, of course, you keep going into greater degrees of depth that we don't actually have. Like, we're not molecular biologists. We're not actually neuroscientists. We're the layperson who's trying to spend a few hours looking into something so the average person doesn't have to. How many of your topics would you say are devoted to quackery, pseudoscience, and simply bad health advice? That's it. That's a good question. I Maybe there was some algorithm that could actually crunch the numbers because I don't want to give you a, a false estimate. <laughs> I would probably say 
maybe 20 to 40%, depending on how you phrase what those words mean. I'm not trying to be weaselly, but a lot of it, pseudoscience is so broad and it's so concerning um, that we think it's a very important issue to address. Straight up quacks, like whether there's a particular person that's terrible, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop comes to mind, is something that we do seem to get a lot of attention to. But I think what we're trying to do more broadly is not only investigate a specific claim or a specific situation or a person and the things that they might be doing that are problematic or the negative health effects that might be caused, but what we're trying to also do is provide the tools to teach critical thinking so that someone can kind of apply these ideas and lessons for themselves. What do you think science needs to do to be able to tackle these issues so that we don't have to worry so much about quackery or or pseudoscience? I think to get out of the ivory tower as much as possible, I think there's been vast increases in science outreach, probably mainly due to podcasting, YouTube, and other platforms where if you're curious about science, it is available. There are fantastic videos. There are shows. There are podcasts to listen to. But I think there is still a bit of a feeling in the realm of academia that scientists are supposed to do science, and if they're writing to communicate to a public audience, to a lay audience, that that is somehow frowned upon, and I think this is preposterous and silly. Often it is public funds, one way or another, that is going to actually fund the researchers doing the science, so I think it should come back to then communicate back to the public about what they found. That said, many scientists, their domain is doing science, their domain is not public relations, so you have to find the right type of scientist who can communicate quite well, otherwise the message can be lost very easily. I think scientists have, well, they have what's on their side. They have the evidence. They have the, the rigor. They have the data on their side. And there's other other people who actually have, have none of that, but they have a compelling story or they have a personal anecdote or something that seems salacious. And that's going to draw a lot of people's attentions or sympathies, depending on what it is. And I think that has to be very seriously combated. As we know, there's this increased risk of people not vaccinating their children due to completely unfounded concerns, but in their own warped logic, something seems to make sense. And I just really think there needs to be an all-hands-on-deck approach before something gets even worse. Speaking of vaccination, do you think that we might ever be able to find a way to vaccinate people against this kind of misinformation? Or do you believe quackery is kind of like the common cold? Even if we are able to prevent it now, it's just going to evolve into something else and show up again sometime later on in the future. <laughs> well, I know you're the germ guy, so let's see if we can keep exploring this analogy. <laughs> what we can do. Maybe it's not quite you can get a full vaccine and maybe it is something like the common cold, but maybe splitting the difference, it could be like the, the flu shot that we can do. When we provide people with the tools for critical thinking, it is something that needs to be presented again and again. We're all human. It is very easy to slip into other ways of thinking, which we forget our rigor. We forget the need for evidence. We forget we can't just trust authority. We can't rely on anecdote. We can't just think because a friend told us something, it's true. And of course, the post hoc fallacy, just because something happened after something, therefore it caused that thing. But we have to be reminded of these things. And like the flu shot, you need to get it every year. And it doesn't mean it's effective, but it does mean it increases your chances of not getting the flu. So the greater exposure one has to critical thinking increases the likelihood of being able to use and apply these lessons. It doesn't mean it's going to work every time, but I do think it's going to help. I think with the right approach, uh, learning you know, science, critical thinking, it's almost like having a superpower. 
because there are many, many people who intentionally or unintentionally want to take advantage of you, hijack your mind, give you a mind virus, to use some more during technology or analogies, and we can combat that with various immune system suppressants and uh, deflections like we have with critical thinking. Well, let's make a deal. How about your show and my show? We're kind of like vaccines that people can get once a week. Sounds great. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you figure out how to duck the quacks and save both your health and money. For a curious cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And if you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, including suggestions for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.